Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, July 25th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our amazing rock and our redeemer. Amen. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. And as they say, uh, spoiler alert... Uh, actually, I think just about everybody has heard at one time or another the story of David and Goliath, right? I mean, even if you've never stepped foot inside of church, the phrase, a David versus a Goliath, that's become part of our cultural language, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it's a metaphor for a lopsided matchup where one is a heavy favorite and one is a huge underdog, and, and the underdog will find, somehow finds a way to win. And when, when he or she does, it's seen as an improbable victory. Well, I think the true spoiler alert is we don't really understand this story. I mean, we think we do. That's kind of how we've perceived it to be. But when we finish this morning, I hope that you'll begin to see this story in a, a completely different light thanks to some incredible research that I found this week. Welcome to the second week in our summer sermon series entitled After God's Own Heart. And for seven weeks, we're going to be looking at a different chapter of the fascinating life of King David, arguably one of the greatest human figures in the Old Testament. And trust me, throughout this series, we will see just how human David actually was. So, I invite you to open your Bibles with me or the Bible app on your phone. And if you have the church app, uh, down on the home screen, scroll down, you'll see the thing that says Bible. Click on that. It'll open you up to the chapter that we're reading each Sunday. Um, If you're flipping through, if you're going old school and actually taking your Bible out, we're about one-fourth of the way through your Bible in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And we're basically going to be reading the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 17. So uh, buckle up, buttercup. This is going to be a fun ride. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephestamim. Saul and the Israelites gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and formed ranks against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So the Philistines were originally from Crete. They were a seafaring people who had moved to Palestine and settled along the coast. And it was actually the threat of the Philistines in that region that had prompted the people of Israel to ask Samuel, their spiritual leader, for a king. And and although King Saul had enjoyed some success as a military leader, he had not been able to vanquish the threat of the Philistines. Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell, in his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, has an excellent intro to this story. He says that at the heart of uh, of ancient Palestine is the region known as the Shephelah, 
It's a series of ridges and valleys that connect the Judean mountains in the east with the wide, flat expanse of the Mediterranean plain. It's an area of breathtaking beauty, home to vineyards and wheat fields, forests of sycamore and terebinth. But it's also a a, a location of great strategic importance. And over the centuries, numerous battles have been fought for control of that region. Because the valley rising from the Mediterranean plain, it offers those on the coast a clear path into the cities of Hebron, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem, in the Judean highlands. Well, in the second half of the 11th century BCE, the Philistines began moving east and winding their way upstream along the valley floor of Elah. And their goal was to capture the mountain ridge near Bethlehem, which would then split Saul's kingdom in two. The Philistines were battle-tested and dangerous. They were the sworn enemies of the Israelites and alarmed Saul as king of Israel had gathered his armies and uh, hastened down from the mountains to confront them. So the Philistines set up camp along the southern ridge in the valley of Elah, uh, which left an Israelite camped on the other side along the northern ridge, and that left the two armies looking at, across at each other from the two mountaintops. But neither of them dared to move. Why? Because that would mean descending down your hill, uh, making, uh, going across the valley, and then making a suicidal climb up the ridge to where your enemy was. And, and you would be sitting ducks for them. Now, if the Philistines had been a superior army, surely they would have uh, pressed for the battle and sought to destroy the Israelites, but it was a stalemate. And here's what the valley looks like today from one side of the mountain looking across at the other. Verse 4, and there came from out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his leg and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and a shield-bearer went before him. So, Here's our first glimpse of our villain, Goliath of Gath, and according to the New Revised Standard Version and the original Hebrew text, he is six cubits and a span tall, which would roughly have been 10 feet, and we saw with our children's time how high that was. However, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which, believe it or not, is actually older than the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, and other ancient sources found in the Dead Sea Scrolls list Goliath as being six feet nine inches tall, which is a far cry from ten feet, but six nine back in the day, that was still extremely, extremely tall. So I want to come back to Goliath's body armor and weaponry a little bit later. Let's push on verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will all be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. 
When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were greatly afraid and dismayed. So Goliath, standing down on the plain now, in between the two armies, is calling for what uh, the ancient world knew as single combat, right? Two sides in a conflict would seek to avoid all of the heavy bloodshed of an open battle by choosing one soldier versus another soldier, and they would duel it out hand to hand. It was a common practice back in the day. And so Goliath is expecting someone to come down, make the trick down the mountain, and come down and stand with him man on man and fight it out for victory. That expectation will actually come back to haunt the Philistine later. But we're told in verse 16 that Goliath issues this challenge every single day for 40 days. Over a month passes And Israel does not send anyone down to fight him. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three eldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. The names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. It appears as if This was the very first time that we're actually meeting David in the book of 1 Samuel. But last week, we met David for the first time in chapter 16 when Samuel came by stealth to anoint him to be the future king of Israel. And this is, there's actually another entrance at the end of chapter 16. So this becomes the third time that the storyteller is is introducing David as if we had never met him before, which raises the question, what's the problem? Why, why are there three different introduction stories? Well, there were so many stories about David. He's such a, a, a tremendously important figure in Israel's history from a variety of traditions that whoever it was that edited the book of 1 Samuel thought that all three stories uh, shared something about David's character and the role that God had in his life. So they left all three stories in. In the verses that follow, David's father uh, tasks him with the assignment of bringing food supplies to his brothers fighting in the army. And uh, while you're there, says Jesse, uh, find out how your brothers are doing. Now, David is too young to fight in the army, but evidently not too young to get a job working for DoorDash. Uh, And so we're told that he's been shepherding in the region, his, his father's flocks outside of Bethlehem. Uh, He's got a certain amount of responsibility. His dad says, here's the supplies. Take it on down and give it to your brothers. Verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took provisions, and went as his father Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going uh, forth into the battle line, shouting the war cry. I love this, right? Every day they get up like, yeah, let's go. But they do that for 40 days. Like nobody's going into battle. But at least they get started on the right note, right, early in the morning. David makes it uh, to the encampment. He drops off his supplies with the baggage handler, and he goes to meet his brothers. And while he's catching up with them, Goliath comes out down on the valley floor again and makes his usual insult speech challenging them to a duel. And our narrator tells us, and David heard him. Well, 
The Israelite army is frozen in fear, as they have been for the past 40 days. Every day it's been the same thing, right? The two armies line up on either side of the valley, each on their own mountains by their encampments. Uh, Great vantage point. They're just looking out over the valley. Goliath lumbers on down, goes out into the middle over towards the Israelite side of the valley. He issues the challenge, and nobody moves. Saul's army just stays Uh, uh, frozen in fear on their side of the valley. Every single day for 40 days, this happens until today. David is incredulous when he hears what's happening. We're not just going to stand there and take this army. Who does this guy think that he is talking to our God like that? Verses 28 and 29. His eldest brother, Eliab, heard him talking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. David said, what what have I done now? It's just a question, right? Eliab accuses his younger brother of rubbernecking at the uh, the battlefield, and you know, there's, there's nothing like family, isn't there, right? I mean, the older brother just lays into David, and he says, what have I done now? You, you get the sense that they maybe had some, some uh, back and forth before. This wasn't the first time, right? Beth Moore comments, I'm not sure anyone can encourage or discourage us quite like family. The views of our family members towards us are very convincing, aren't they? Eugene Peterson notes, the way the people closest to us treat us isn't always the truth of our lives. Now, this is not the first introduction to Eliab, is it? Remember last week when Samuel came down to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel? God was going to identify to him which one it would be, and and he said it's from the house of Jesse, and so Jesse had all of his sons line up from oldest to youngest, and Eliab is oldest and tallest and strongest and most handsome, But God says, I don't look on the heart. I mean, I don't look on the outside, I look on the heart. And Eliab was not chosen. And you have to wonder, maybe he still harbored some bitterness and resentment towards David. What's what's more uh, likely, though, is this is Eliab's true character, right? No matter what he looked like on the outside, God knew his heart. And you can see now, eh, it's not the guy you want to have leading your entire nation, someone that's jealous and and carries uh, resentment. It's interesting that Eliab says, I know your evil heart. And yet we're already told that God told Samuel, I'm looking for someone with a man after my own heart, and that's why he chose David. So Eliab thinks he knows David, but God knows David better. David is a man after God's own heart. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him, Goliath, Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, "Uh, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. You're just a boy. And he has been a warrior from his youth. David goes on to tell Saul, no, no, no. I've been a shepherd and I've faced lions and bears. Lions and bears were the most dangerous uh, creatures that were in Israel at that time in the wilderness. And David says, with God on my side... 
the Philistine will be just as easy to, to defeat as lions and bears. Verse 37. Then David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. So at first, Saul, the first king of Israel, is, of course, skeptical. Why? David is small. Goliath is big. You do the math, right? Saul's already falling into the trap that God cautioned Samuel. Don't look on the outward appearances. There's more to someone than just what you can see on the outside. As Malcolm Gladwell notes, Saul doesn't appreciate that power can come in other forms as well. In breaking rules, in substituting speed and surprise for strength. Now, remember, they've been at this stalemate for over a month now, 40 days to be exact, right? And Saul, who evidently uh, is not too keen on volunteering himself to go down and fight Goliath, uh, he literally has no other options. I mean, they've been there for over a month. In his mind, he can't fathom that David would have any shot at at defeating this seasoned military veteran like Goliath, but, but David won't be fighting alone. As Eugene Peterson comments, in the Bethlehem hills and meadows tending his father's sheep, David was immersed in the largeness and immediacy of God. His praying and singing, his meditation and adoration had shaped an imagination in him that set each sheep and lamb, bear and lion, into something large and vast and robust to God, that everything David saw was from the vantage point of how God fit into the big picture. Verse 38 and 39, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I, I, I cannot walk with these. I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Now, I'm sure that King Saul was well-intentioned, right? I mean, he just knew David was about to be slaughtered, so I'll give you as much uh, help as I can. And so he gives the boy his own armor. An adult, a grown, middle-aged adult man, probably twice the size of teenage David, uh, and he gives him his armor and battle-scarred weapons. It, is it any wonder that David couldn't walk, uh, couldn't fight, let alone walk? And so uh, it's also a telling reminder, right? As, as good as people intended, we can't wear another person's armor, right? We can't take on another person's protection and their grounding. We have to build our own defenses and our own support. And David knew that One's defense started not with what you wear on the outside, but it started with God. Verse 40. Then David took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi. And he put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch and his sling was in his hand and he drew uh, near to the Philistine. Biblical scholar Tony Cartledge in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on this passage notes that the Iron Age was still young around this time. The Philistines, though, were very proficient 
in, uh, in, in iron technology, Israelite, Israelites had not. In fact, they hadn't even mastered uh, iron, iron working yet. And we're told earlier in chapter 13 that the Israelites would have to take their plowshares, axes, and sickles over to the Philistines to have them sharpen them for them so they could go back and use them. Right? So when it comes to armor and weaponry, the Philistines have a distinct advantage. Uh, and I'm about to, what I'm about to lay out isn't exactly the ten dual commandments, but this is what Goliath wore to battle. Early in the chapter, they listed the litany of armaments. He had a coat of mail covering his body and weighing over 100 pounds. He had bronze shin guards to protect his legs. He had a heavy metal helmet on his head, keeping his brain safe. Uh, and three separate weapons all were optimized for close hand-to-hand combat. He had a bronze javelin, which was capable of penetrating the shield or armor of his combatant, a hip sword for hand-to-hand fighting, and his primary weapon would have been a short-range spear. Scholars tell us that the spear had a cord attached to it and an elaborate set of weights that allowed it to be released with extraordinary force and accuracy. Historian uh, Moshe Garcel writes, To the Israelites, this extraordinary spear with its heavy shaft plus long and heavy blade, uh, when hurled by Goliath's strong arm, seemed capable of piercing any bronze shield and bronze armor together. And... And now you wonder why, for 40 days, nobody wanted to go down and fight this guy, right? Well, here's where it starts to get interesting. We know that David's weapon of choice is a sling, right? A sling and some smooth stones. And most of us, when we hear this story, we think something like, oh, what a poor kid. All he's got is a little toy kind of thing. It's nothing compared to what Goliath had. Well, not so fast. Malcolm Gladwell had a fascinating take on David's weapon of choice. He says that in the ancient uh, days, uh, there were three types of soldiers that would come out to battle. You had the cavalry, which were armed men on horseback or in chariots. You had the infantry, foot soldiers, who were wearing armor and carrying swords and shields, ready to fight hand to hand. And then you had the artillery, what was otherwise known as projectile warriors. These were your archers, and your slingers. Now, slingers had a leather pouch attached on two sides by a a piece of rope, and then they would put a rock or a lead ball into that uh, leather pouch, swing it around in increasingly faster and faster circles, then release one end of the rope, which would propel the stone or the lead ball uh, towards its target. Now, slinging took extraordinary amounts of skill and practice, but in the hands of an expert, The sling was a devastating weapon. An expert slinger could kill or seriously injure a target from a distance of up to 200 yards away. Gladwell says that the Romans even had a special set of tongs that they made to remove stones that had been embedded in their soldier's body by slingers. It was that serious. Historian Barak Uh, Baruch Halpern argues that the sling was of such importance in ancient warfare that the three kinds of warriors balanced each other out almost like the ancient rock-paper-scissors game, right? With their long spikes, uh, long pikes and and armor, infantry 
uh, could stand up to cavalry as they came by on their horses. Cavalry, though, could defeat projectile warriors because a big lumbering, uh, sorry, because they were, the horses moved too quickly for the artillery to take proper aim. But the projectile warriors were deadly against the infantry because big lumbering soldiers weighed down by armor, they were sitting ducks for slingers who could launch projectiles from 100 yards away or more. Now, Saul is trying to prepare David to be uh, an infantry soldier, right? Armor, sword, shield. David has no intention of fighting Goliath in the traditional hand-to-hand combat, even though that's what Goliath is calling for. He's going to fight him the same way that he fought bears and lions as a shepherd, and that was as a slinger, as artillery. Verse 41 to 44. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. So Goliath is the epitome of heavy infantry, right? When he says, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air, he's not just trash-talking, though he does have quite the trash-talking game going, doesn't he? No, he's saying, Come up to me, literally come to me, so we can fight mano a mano, right? Man-to-man, one-on-one. David is not going to fight him as an infantry soldier. He's going to fight him as a slinger. David then proceeds to get his own share of trash-talking in, uh, verse 45. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. It goes on for a few more verses, but David basically says that after today, everyone's going to know on both sides of this mountain and this valley that there is a true God in Israel who doesn't need swords, spears, or javelins to win. And now we get back to where I started this morning. Verse 48. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. Notice that the narrator says that David runs to to Goliath. Why? Because he isn't wearing any armor, so he can run. Infantry soldiers can't run. They're weighed down. David has speed and maneuverability. He grabs his sling. He aims for his opponent's forehead, the only point of vulnerability on his body. Aiton Hirsch, a ballistic expert with the Israeli Defense Forces, recently did a series of calculations showing that the size of a, a typical stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 35 meters would have hit Goliath's head with velocity of 34 meters per second, which is 76 miles per hour. That's more than enough weight to penetrate his skull and render him, if not unconscious, dead. He writes, 
we find that David could have slung and hit Goliath in a little more than a second, a time so brief that Goliath would not have been able to protect himself and during which he would be stationary for all practical purposes. So it's incredibly fascinating to get like the physics of how this battle would have played out, but that's not all. Malcolm Gladwell also has another bit of insight into this iconic battle. Now, before I share what his final piece of insight is, I want to tell you why he wrote this book in the first place, right? It's only this introductory chapter that's about David and Goliath. The rest of the book is all about different stories. He says there were two key uh, insights he wanted to explore in this book. He writes, the first is that much of what we consider valuable in our world arises out of these kinds of lopsided conflicts because the act of facing overwhelming odds produces greatness and beauty. You want to have more greatness and beauty in your life? Do something challenging. Second, we consistently get these kinds of conflicts wrong. We misread them, we misinterpret them because giants are not what we think they are. The same qualities that appear to give them strength are often sources of great weakness. Now, could it be that Saul and the Israelites only think they know who and what Goliath is and what he's capable of, right? Gladwell notes that Goliath is supposed to be this mighty warrior. Why then does he need an attendant to carry his shield down onto the battlefield? Shield bearers in ancient days only supported artillery warriors, archers who couldn't carry their shields because they had to use both hands in order to aim and fire off their arrows. So, so why does Goliath, a man calling for sword-on-sword sword single combat, why does he need to have someone carry his sword? He's obviously the biggest and strongest of all of the Philistine soldiers. And why does he say, come to me? Why doesn't he go over to David? The biblical account emphasizes how slowly Goliath moves, which is kind of odd for someone who's allegedly a battle hero of infinite strength. And remember what he said when David came out uh, to greet him on the battlefield? He said, am I a dog? Why do you come with me with sticks? Sticks, plural. The only stick David had in his hand was his shepherd's staff. Maybe, if that at all. What many experts now believe, in fact, is that Goliath had a serious medical condition. He looks and he sounds like someone suffering from what's called acromegaly a disease that's called by, caused by a <clears throat> benign tumor in the pituitary gland. A tumor causes an overproduction of the human growth hormone, hormone which would have explained Goliath's unusual size, even 6'9 at that time. The tallest person in history, Robert Wadlow, suffered from acromegaly. At his death, he was 8 feet 11 inches tall and still growing. Andre the Giant also suffered from acromegaly. Furthermore, one of the common side effects of acromegaly is vision problems. Why? Because pituitary tumors can grow to the point where they compress on the nerves uh, leading to the eyes. So people with acromegaly often suffer from severely restricted eyesight uh, and dipl uh, diplopia or double vision. So why was Goliath being led onto the valley floor by an attendant? 
because he was his, basically, seeing eye dog. He was his visual guide that led him to where he was supposed to be. Why did he move so, slur so slowly? Because the whole world around him was a blur. Why did it take him so long to understand that David had changed the rules and wasn't going to fight him hand to hand, but was going to attack him as a slinger? Because he couldn't see David until he got up exactly really, really close. Gladwell continues, in reality, the very thing that gave the giant his size was also the source of his greatest weakness. There's an important lesson in that for battles with all kinds of giants. The powerful and the strong are not always what they seem. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. Beth Moore says that the story of David and Goliath reminds us that we should, like David, measure the size of our obstacles against the size of our God. When we measure the obstacles against our own strength or lack thereof, we often feel defeated and overwhelmed even before the battle begins, right? That's the Israelites standing uh, frozen in fear for 40 days on the other side of the valley, but not David. David trusted that God was with him and that despite all appearances to the contrary, what you see isn't always what you get. Because giants aren't always what they seem. Sometimes their strengths can also turn out to be their very weaknesses. And if we, like David, put our trust in God, there is no telling what we might not be able to overcome. I hope you had a little new perspective on this familiar story. May God cement in each of us whatever truth it is that we needed to hear this day from this message that we might live it out and be the men, women, and young people that God have called and created us to be. And all God's people said, amen. amen.